This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, it's official. Judge Brown Jackson is now Justice Brown Jackson, here to break us this down for us, what this means for the future of the court, if anything, how to improve the Supreme Court selection process in the future, and what the implications of this might be politically and legally, is one of my favorite scholars when it comes to the Supreme Court, Eric Siegel. He's a law professor at Georgia State University. He's host of a terrific podcast called Supreme Myths, and an author whose latest book I've been enjoying very much. It's called Originalism as Faith. Professor Siegel, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thanks, Frank. It's been too long. We um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's my my con, my conversion to nocturnal hours doesn't suit all, <laughs> all of my favorite guests that well. So it's great to talk with you. I can't imagine uh, breaking this down with anyone else. So uh, the confirmation of Judge uh, Judge Jackson, is this the is she going to be the greatest Supreme Court justice ever or the worst? Yeah. Um, let me make two quick points that are not particularly controversial. And then I'll throw some really controversial takes at you, okay, um, that I've been writing about over the last couple of weeks. First, she's a wonderful person. She's going to be a very good justice. She deserves it. She's qualified. So that's one. Two, it's nice to have a black woman to serve as a role model for um, other you know, black girls and everything. And I'm, I'm totally happy about that, and that's a great thing. So those are two things that I think are pretty incontrovertible. Now, what these last three weeks have shown us, the last – 200 years have shown us, but the last three weeks especially, our Supreme Court is broken. People, she's going to change nothing when it comes to important votes for like, I don't know, three decades. I mean, we have five conservatives, you know, who are very young other than Justice Thomas. So um, liberals and progressives are really happy about this. I'm glad they, uh, but, but it means nothing in terms of abortion, affirmative action, campaign finance reform, any issue you care about, this is irrelevant. But Frankly, the more important take is this. Our confirmation process is totally broken because the Supreme Court is broken. And you and I have talked about this before. But here's my evidence for how we know the confirmation process is broken and the court is broken. They all have to lie, Frank, and they all do. She lied. Alito and Roberts lied. Kagan lied. They all lie during the confirmation process because they all say the same thing. They all say it. Liberals, this is not a partisan take. They all say. I am going to interpret the law, not make the law. It's not my job to make the law. It's my job to interpret the law, and that's what I'm going to do. None of them believe it. They're all lying. And the fact that they have to lie to get on the court is not a reflection on the process. It's a reflection on our court and how badly misguided the American people are when it comes to this Supreme Court of the United States. Now, your listeners may think, ah, he's some progressive liberal who's mad. Frank, I was saying this in 2012. I was saying this in 1993. You know that. I've been saying this for a very long time. No, that's for sure. Um, I want to ask you about some of the issues that you just touched upon, including how yeah. to improve this process going forward. But first, a couple of issues related to Justice Jackson specifically. Uh, the conservative senators that were part of her confirmation process, uh, Senator Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Lindsey Graham, who's voted to confirm a number of Democratic nominees before, uh, Senator Josh Hawley, they all seemed to try to paint the picture of 
her being soft on crime in general and soft on pedophilia-related crimes specifically. When you look at her sentences, when you look at the recommendations by the prosecutors and the pre-probationary reports for those sentences, do you think there's any credence at all to what those conservative senators were trying to raise? Zero. Um, let, let, me, let me say that Democrats have raised silly and crazy issues before as well. So I don't want to be partisan here. No, there's no. First of all, she comes from a law enforcement family. I mean, she's the, the sentencing guidelines issue. The reason they were able to make some hay with their constituencies about the soft on child pornography, child molesters is because the sentencing guidelines issues are complicated. They're difficult, Frank. And they really can't be explained in sound bites. And that's the problem. They don't have time to have real conversations. We did, we did with Judge Bork. There were real conversations with Judge Bork. That was the last time. And now they didn't care about her. They knew they couldn't defeat her, that the votes weren't there. They knew that from the very beginning. Everything every senator says in those hearings, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, and then a few moderates we still have in this world, um, was meant not to do anything helpful for this process but to get them votes back home. And so, you know, Ted Cruz, uh, well, you and I are going to disagree about Ted Cruz probably. Um, but the more he can make Democrats appear to be soft on crime and, 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 and liberal, and, you know, Texas is doing all kinds of crazy things with race that New York would never do. Um, so it's all about pandering to the base, and that's part of the problem. It's that we're not, they don't really care what the candidate thinks. They're not going to find out what the candidate thinks. And by the way, ever since Judge Bork, Every candidate has refused to answer any serious question. I've written a lot on that question, Frank. Oh, I, I know. Uh, I, yeah. The um, the uh, the piece that you wrote in uh, on the eve of just now Justice Kagan's confirmation was yes. uh, really groundbreaking in terms of the fact that these nominees have opinions about everything. They should actually be able to say what some of those opinions well, are without worrying well, about their uh, Supreme Court spot going away. Well, thank you. You are well prepared. Thank you for remembering that. Um, my, the, the, main sound, the main point I can make quickly there is no one's asking for any promises. That would be inappropriate. We agree on that, right? Nobody's asking for any commitments. Everybody agrees on that. But there's no reason a nominee can't say, I've been in law for 30 years. I've been a professor. I've been a judge. Or I've been a prosecutor or whatever. Of course I've thought about abortion. What lawyer in America hasn't thought about abortion? And I have opinions about it. Now, when I see a case in front of me with real parties and I have to actually make the decision, I, I, I might change my mind, and I certainly reserve the right to change my mind. But of course I have opinions, and here they are. What, that would be real, right? And what's wrong with that? I don't understand what's wrong with right, that. Right, right. No, I, neither do I. Um, last question about Justice Brown uh, Jackson specifically. and then... actually, She's not technically a justice until Breyer retires. I way. see. Okay, so when will that be? Help us out here. I think he said the end of the term, which which raises some interesting issues, by the way. But go on, ask well, your question. Uh, so, and, and for those of us that are laymen, when does the term end? The la- last day of June, most of the time. 
Got it. Okay, so come the summer, I guess, she would be Justice Jackson. Got it. Now, the other issue that a lot of our listeners uh, took issue with, and it's kind of one of these sexy issues that's easy to understand, it's easy to form opinions about, and doesn't necessarily have much bearing on future Supreme Court cases, is her answer to Senator Blackburn on the question of what is a woman. And she basically didn't answer the question and said, I'm not a biologist. A whole bunch of listeners called in and said, well, you know, if she can't even even answer that question. Is that really somebody that's in a position to be on the Supreme Court? How did you think she handled that question of what is a woman? Uh, that's complicated. Um, that's complicated. I, I, I think it's a silly question, first of all. If what, the, if what the senator was getting at were her views on transgender issues, then they should have asked her about transgender issues. I, you know, um, Because, Frank, I got to tell you something, and it's hard for me, but um, I, I have teenage children. Um, I have a 31-year-old, but I also have a, four, a 13 and a 14. Half of my children's friends identify as gender non-binary. It's just a fact. And if that's happening in Atlanta, I am sure it's happening in New York, um, especially in the more liberal parts. And these young people say that there are men, there are women, and then there are people who, who, who identify as both or neither or on a spectrum. I think that's a whole very – trust me, as a parent, I can tell you it's a complicated conversation. It's difficult. It's hard. has nothing to do with her being a Supreme Court justice. So that, Now, if they asked her, do you think transgender kids should have rights to use whatever the bathroom of their choice or play on sports teams? An issue, by the way, I find very difficult. Um, then, then she would have not answered the question like she didn't answer any questions like they never do. But that would have been honest. That would have been like, tell me where you stand on transgender issues. And she would have said they could come before me, so I won't make a comment. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least we'd be talking honestly. At least we'd have an honest conversation. Um, I, I am telling you, Frank, five years ago I could have defined a woman, and today I cannot. <laughs> I, I can't. Understandable. Believe me, it does uh, yeah. it does certainly get uh, get complicated. Now, uh, and by the way, if people just tu- tuning in, we're talking with uh, Professor Eric Siegel. He's a professor at uh, Georgia State University, also the author of a couple of terrific books on the Supreme Court, the latest of which is called Originalism as Faith. Now, uh, let's go back to what we were talking about, uh, how these hearings have morphed into these very sophisticated lawyers who have opinions about everything, not taking a position on anything. Did that yep. begin with the Bork confirmation? Uh, if so, how did that start and why did that start? So this, that, so you're asking a, a complicated question that I don't have a radio soundbite answer for. But um, Justice O'Connor came to my law school twice, actually. But the second time she came, someone asked her the question, when did the confirmation hearings die? Like, you know, when, when did they become a joke? When did they become this awful? And, and, and she was here long after Bork. You know, she was here when she retired. And, and everybody thought she would say with Judge Bork. She didn't. She said they died when my confirmation hearing as the first woman was put on television. Mm. Interesting. And it was a, yes, that's what I thought. Too. She didn't say it in any kind of arrogant way. You know, she was just saying, key, and, 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 I, and I think what she, and then she went on to say, once you put it on television, then the merits of the candidate or nominee becomes much less important to the senators than what they think their constituents will react to. And I think she's probably right. Now, the lesson from the Bork hearings some people took was don't answer any questions. That wasn't the right lesson. The right lesson was 
he was a swing vote. So we've only had a couple of those, right? I mean, Kennedy got that. And then, you know, when Justice Scalia died, there was going to be a swing vote. And, of course, we know what happened there. McConnell wouldn't let mm-hmm. Democrats do it because it was so important. Non-swing vote justices are treated somewhat differently than swing vote justices. Bork was going to be the swing vote. I, so, and you know my feelings about this. Uh, leaving aside Judge Bork's record as a judge, which is – let's leave that aside as a court of appeals judge. As an academic, as a famous law professor, I agree with everything Bork said. Bork said the Supreme Court shouldn't decide any law is unconstitutional unless the plaintiff shows clearly that it's inconsistent with text or history. That's, that was his stick. I agree with that. <laughs> I think that's the right answer. Um, I'm the only progressive you're going to meet who's thought that for 30 years, but I thought that for 30 years. Um, no, I think I think Hunter is right. I think he, I mean, I wouldn't take him off TV because that's a democracy problem, too. But the problem is the television. The problem is Democrats and Republicans playing to their constituencies as opposed to trying to find out, is this a person we really want on the Supreme Court of the United States? I think that's the problem. Going back to uh, Judge Jackson, Mm -hmm. the the president was very vocal, even during the campaign, that he wanted to appoint a woman of color for a a Supreme Court position. Now, do you think he would have been better off and maybe the country would have been better off if he had not made that declaration publicly and just said he was going to appoint the most qualified person and then appointed Judge Jackson and said, this is the most qualified person. She happens to be a woman of color. That's that's a triggering question for me. (laughs) I'll, I'll tell you why. Because George Bush, the first, stood up. And replaced Clarence, uh, um, Justice Thurgood Marshall, Marshall. Right. Marshall, the first black Supreme Court justice, and the man who litigated Brown versus Board of Education, which ended segregation. Um, I think Marshall was an American hero for his litigation on race. He he was a justice who just voted his politics all the time, like they all do. Um, when Bush said Clarence Thomas was the most qualified man in America for the job, everybody laughed, including conservatives. He wasn't. He wasn't close. It wasn't a close call. Um Judge Jackson has, has a different record, though, and, and I mean, I mean, a much different record than Clarence Thomas did. Um, I would, I, I've been going back and forth on this. Um, if I, I think making it that public that quickly that early was a mistake, there was no reason to do it. Just pick her. I don't, the, you know, little black girls who see a black female Supreme Court justice, they don't care if this was announced a year ago right. or you know, they don't care. And I think it, it. I'm just talking politically now. I think politically it was a mistake. That's what I think. In terms of you've talked a lot about the lack of diversity. No, on I mean, the, it may be clear. Not uh, the mistake wasn't picking her. The mistake was announcing announcing advance, right only a black woman. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, yeah. You've been very vocal about the lack of diversity on the court, but the way that you've talked about it doesn't necessarily mean by race or gender. You've talked about the lack of academic diversity. Now, uh, eight of the nine justices will have come from one of the two same uh, one of the same two schools, uh, and the lack of diversity of experience. Experience. Uh, there has not been a lot of uh, people on the court that have actual experience in a courtroom. There haven't been a lot of people that have come from outside the Court of Appeals. Judge Jackson has some experience in the courtroom, and she actually has some experience as a trial judge, actually hearing cases, including those aforementioned controversial uh, child molestation cases or pedophilia cases that I referenced earlier. Do you? Does that give you any any solace?
just the fact that she does have a little bit more courtroom experience than the average Supreme Court justice does nowadays. It, it gives me a lot of solace. Um, and, and plus, what she was, a you know, I think her experience is much more diverse than most, you know, than, than, than let's say, Kagan's or Scalia's were, you know, much more diverse. Um, and having, a, I mean, I do think having seasoned litigators like Ginsburg and Marshall, who, and John Roberts, who may have been the best oral advocate ever in front of the Supreme Court, or one of them, top 10. Um, I think having experienced litigants and litigators and advocates makes sense. Um, but, but you know what, Frank, I, 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 I want to be clear in my message because we don't get to talk very often. The court is broken. The confirmation process is broken. Nothing she's going to do is going to change that. Um, and it's not broken because there are six conservatives and three liberals. It is broken because they're not judges. And it, as long as we treat them as judges, everything goes. You know, Frank, the public went crazy in 1857 when the court said Congress couldn't end slavery in the territories. The public went crazy in the 1920s and 30s when the court was striking down minimum wage laws and overtime laws and all this stuff they shouldn't have been doing. The court went, the public went crazy, and Nixon used it with with Roe versus with I'm sorry with Miranda, and then and then Reagan used Roe. You know, and, and insistence United was a big thing for Hillary. It lost, but who knows? This has been going on too long. They keep overstepping. They keep doing too much. And no amount of experience. My litmus test, if I were a senator, would be um, your honor or your, you know, your whoever, your candidate. Are you going to strike down a law? That, it, it, what degree of certainty do you have to be a law is unconstitutional before you strike it down? The pat answer is going to be, well, pretty certain, you know, no, you should be unbelievably certain because this is a law passed by the voters or is a decision by the governor or the president or whatever. And you're an unelected life tenure judge. Right. If if the if Congress uh, passes a law without a constitutional amendment, adding a hundred and first senator, that's clearly in yeah. as to use Hamilton's phrase, irreconcilable variance with the Constitution. You're, good, Frank. you're really good. Frank. I, I know it all from reading you. I tell you, and listening to the Supreme <laughs> Myths podcast. A uh, uh, couple of quick questions I want to throw at yeah. you before we run out of time. Yeah. I was listening yeah. to Mick Mulvaney on uh, John Katzmatidi's radio show last night on our station. And he said something that I largely agree with. He said, look, this is not probably not the kind of person that I pick, but Biden won the election. I'm in the minority in Republicans. I still think um, that advised consent is there to make sure that you don't get people who are corrupt, people who are woefully underqualified. I wouldn't ever nominate this um, this uh, person to the uh, to the to the to the Supreme Court. Neither would would Pete, neither would any Republican. But we lost an election. And the, the president should be entitled to nominate the, the person or persons that he sees fit. If that person is qualified and not corrupt and not his brother-in-law and all those types of things, I think you're probably entitled to have the Supreme Court nominee that he likes. It seems like through a lot of our country's history, that was the case. Even someone who was as polarizing as Scalia was uh, confirmed with 98 or 99 votes. Why did that change? When did senators start voting against justices because of their political differences rather than concerns about character or lack of qualifications? Right. My, um, I hope your audience won't hold me to this, but I think Lindsey Graham, this is the first Democrat or the first person Lindsey Graham has not voted for, I think. I could be wrong about that. If it's not the first, it may be the second. You know, he's, he has voted to improve almost all of them. Um, and of course, Joe Biden, people don't remember this. Clarence Thomas does not get confirmed if Joe Biden doesn't run those hearings the way he did, because there was a woman in Washington, D.C. waiting to testify 
and corroborate Nita Hill's testimony. And, and Biden wouldn't let her testify. And if that had happened, I don't think he gets approved. It changed somewhere after Roberts and Alito. Um, I'm not sure exactly when. But, I mean, the fact that all 11 Republican members of the Judiciary Committee voted against this woman is crazy. I mean, she's clearly qualified. Um, Gorsuch, I think, was clearly qualified. And a lot of Democrats voted against him. I don't like Neil Gorsuch. But he was clearly, by any metric, qualified to be on the Supreme Court of the United States. I mean, he'd been a court of appeals judge. He'd been a smart – before that, he'd been another – clearly qualified. Um, We can debate Kavanaugh and, you know, what happened there. But it happened recently, and, and throughout most of American history, if a nominee was not going to get the votes, they wouldn't have a hearing. They would know ahead of time, kind of. If a nominee had a hearing, most of the time, like you said, there have been exceptions, of course, but they've been confirmed overwhelmingly. Scalia is not a good example because he was touted as the first – he was the first Italian-American. Mm-hmm. And also he wasn't a swing – he was replacing a conservative, so that wasn't a controversial thing. There have been controversial nominations, but not like we have today. And now it's just a partisan showdown, right? Whoever – I mean, you get three Republicans voted for her. Okay. But overall, it's a partisan showdown. But, but Frank, it's not the process that's broken. It's the court that's and broken. I know a lot of that has to do with the justices striking down laws that were passed by democratically elected legislatures. How much of that also has to do with life tenure? A lot, because um, I know personally a lot of court of appeals judges and a lot of federal district court judges, which are really plum jobs, and they have life tenure. And if you're on the court of appeals, Frank, 99% of your cases don't get to the Supreme Court. So you have the final say 99% of the time, effectively. Now, of course, the most important cases go, but not all of them. And psychologically, unreviewable power plus life tenure is an insane idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I mentioned this once before. Do I have another one minute to go? Can yeah, please. One more minute? So I was very lucky for 13 years. The dean of my law school was also my closest friend. It's good to have the dean be your closest friend. It's a nice thing. Um, and it worked out really well. And, and objectively, he was a great dean. He built us a brand new building in a, in a recession. It was all great. He had to answer to the provost, who had to answer to the president, who had to answer to the board of regents. I would have loved my, my friend to be dean for the, for the rest of my life, but would I have given him life tenure? Not in 10,000 years because you give any – my dad was a CEO. He had to answer to the board of directors. You don't give people a job for life. <laughs> By the way, I have a job for life, and if I screw up really badly, but the good news is I have no power, and no one cares what I say. <laughs> but don't give important people a job for life. It's not – the head of your radio station – Maybe you love him or her. Would you give him a job for life? Well, our look, our owner, uh, John Katsimatidis, I would give him a job for 10 lifetimes. He's the only okay. thing standing between me and uh, being homeless. So absolutely, <laughs> uh, for the sake of my four-month-old, he should have a job for life. Uh, I, I have to run. Um, very yeah. quickly, very quickly, yeah. we have a lot yes. of people that identify as conservatives that listen to this show. And yeah. they've been almost trained uh, to believe that they are 
are originalists. Your whole book, your your most recent book, Originalism as Faith, it takes apart the whole doctrine of originalism, if it even exists. In a nutshell, and again, maybe we can do an, a lengthier interview just focused on your book. What's wrong with originalism? What's wrong with applying the Constitution as written and not adding your own personal preferences to it, which is what I think a lot of people who call themselves originalists believe. So what I've written in my book and other places is originalism plus great deference to the elected branches is actually good. In other words, unless the plaintiff shows that the law in question either violates the clear text, which never happens, Frank, because the text is never clearer, free speech, equal protection, due process, um, establishment of religion. These aren't phrases that lead to clarity or really clear history. Then judges should stand down. The problem is your listeners may be originalist, and I believe they are, but there's never been a Supreme Court justice who's originalist. Because if you had unreviewable power and a job for life, you would just do what you think is best. And that's what they do. Um, that's what they do. But the real answer to your question is what does it mean to be originalist? We know free speech applies to the internet. Of course it does. How? There's nothing in 1789 to help us answer that question. Nothing, not a syllable. Nothing in 1789 tells us. President Obama assassinated an American citizen having lunch in Yemen. He was a terrorist, but no court ever said that. I think Obama made a mistake. I think it was unconstitutional. A lot of people disagree with me about that. That's fine. Nothing in 1789 tells us what a president can do with a drone killing a terrorist who could blow up New York with a cell phone. Nothing. So, and and, and that, that's why originalism doesn't work right. unless you do my approach. You, the plaintiff, have a heavy burden of proof. Show us as an original matter this is unconstitutional. If you don't, you lose. I'm in favor of that, but none of the justices are. Yeah, well, it's difficult to see where decisions like Citizens United and uh, Bush versus Gore fit into an originalist mindset. That's for sure. All right, Uh, Professor Siegel, there's a a ton of other questions that I have for you. Uh, We're going to have to save them for next time. Thank you so much for joining me on the radio. Frank, I swear I got one quick thing for you. I got to tell you, I do, I do, I do, I do 100 interviews a year. You're the best prepared radio guy I know. Uh, one of them. We're tied. You're tied. You're tied with my friend Pete Dominic. I, the best prepared I'm a big guy. fan of Pete Dominic, so uh, <laughs> I, I'm honored to be in that category. Thank you, <laughs> Professor Siegel. Eric Siegel, the book is, it's pretty short, too, so you, you, it won't take you long to read, but it, you'll learn a lot from it, and it's written in a manner that laymen, even like me, can understand. Originalism as faith, and if you haven't read his previous book, Supreme Myths, uh, I highly recommend it. This is The Other Side of Midnight. You want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, one 800 848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.